0: Section 18 of The Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ron Altman The Bible Under Trial by James Orr OPPOSITIONS OF SCIENCE PART Four: The lesson taught as to the right use of Scripture by the astronomical difficulty received new application and accentuation in the controversy that arose in last century as to the bearing on the biblical account of the creation of the discoveries of geology. The law applies here also that the Bible is not designed to anticipate the discoveries of nineteenth-century science, but speaks of natural things as they lie open to the eye of the ordinary observer, and uses the language that would be understood by readers of its own time. Genesis 1 says, God Created but leaves it open to any subsequent discovery to show the method of his creation. This Genesis record is utterly unlike any other cosmogony that ever was given. Its inspiration is attested by its monotheistic character, its sublimity of thought and style, and its truth of representation in essential points comparison with the debased polytheistic creation legend of babylonia only brings out more forcibly the unchallengeable superiority of the biblical account its intention is primarily to be the vehicle of the great religious ideas that inform it yet so true is the insight yielded by the spirit of revelation that the writer or seer is able really to seize the great stadia in the process of creation, and to represent these in a way which conveys a practically accurate conception of them to men's minds. Proof of this is hardly needed when we have a certificate to the fact from no less redoubtable an authority than Haeckel himself. He speaks of, quote, the simple and natural chain of ideas which runs through unquote, the Mosaic account emphasizes how quote, two great and fundamental ideas, common also to the non miraculous theory of development, meet us in the Mosaic hypothesis of creation with surprising clearness and simplicity. The idea Of separation or differentiation, and the idea of progressive development or perfecting, and bestows his just and sincere admiration on the Jewish lawgiver's grand insight into nature and his simple and natural hypothesis of creation. The tribute thus paid is just. I do not touch on the harmonies of Genesis and geology, but only ask the reader to consider if it would have been possible to construct such parallels as we have, for instance, in Hugh Miller's Testimony of the Rocks, had there not been at least very remarkable general resemblances to go upon. To my own mind, the general harmony does seem very striking i quote again words of my own the dark watery waste over which the spirit broods with vivifying power the advent of light the formation of an atmosphere or sky capable of sustaining the clouds above it the settling of the great outlines of the continents and seas the clothing of the dry land with abundant vegetation the adjustment of the earth's relation to sun and moon as the visible rulers of its day and night, the production of the great sea monsters and reptile-like creatures and birds, the peopling of the earth with four-footed beasts and cattle, last of all the advent of man. Is there so much of all this which science requires us to cancel? Unquote. Even with regard to the days, the duration of time involved, there is no insuperable difficulty. The writer may very well have intended symbolically or pictorially to represent the creation as a great week of work, ending with the Creator's Sabbath rest. It seems to me, however, more probable, in view of the fact that days of twenty-four hours do not begin to run till the appointment of the sun on the fourth day, Genesis 1, verse 14, that he did not intend to affix a precise length to his creation days. These, therefore, may be allowed to represent long periods of duration. This view is taken on exegetical grounds alone, by christian writers long before geology was heard of footnote for example by augustine de Civitate, 11 verse 6 to 7 quote of what fashion these days were it is exceedingly hard or altogether impossible to think much more to speak unquote and etc end of footnote But suppose it granted that the difficulty is largely past in regard to the age of the earth. Is there not still a serious obstacle to the acceptance of the Bible's teaching in the declarations of science on the extreme antiquity of man? If man's appearance on the earth is to be carried back 100,000 or 200,000 years, or even farther, how does this fit in with the Bible's account of his creation, apparently some six thousand years ago? A preliminary inquiry would be, is it clear that man's existence needs to be carried back so far? I prefer, however, to look at the matter first on its biblical side. I leave to those who care for them speculations on Pre Adamic man and the like, and accept for myself what I take to be the plain teaching of Scripture, that man made in God's image was the last of the creator's works Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven and that the whole race of human beings has sprung from Adam, the first created man Genesis three verse twenty. How is it the date usually assigned to this event to be reconciled with the alleged facts of anthropology? The honest answer to this question must be, it cannot be reconciled. Apart from anthropology altogether, the course of discovery in Babylonia and Egypt has been such as to show that man existed on the earth in a state of civilization many millenniums earlier than was formerly believed. The Bible itself, however, is not thereby discredited, but only the human chronologies based on it, as it has been proved mistakenly. The Bible gives, indeed, summaries of early human history and genealogical tables extending in apparently unbroken line from Adam to Abraham and Moses. But just here the fallacy comes in. For setting mythical explanations aside, who is to guarantee that these genealogies are, or were ever intended to be, complete, or that they do not in some cases represent heads of families, or clan fathers, or typical links in a long chain of descent, the intermediate links of which are dropped out. The highly technical manner in which genealogies were commonly constructed compare the list of the seventy who went down with Jacob to Egypt, Genesis 46, which with other anomalies, includes Jacob himself and the two sons of Joseph born in Egypt, verse 20 in the number the frequent mingling of clan or tribal names with personal, as obviously in Genesis 10 and 11, the compression of lists by omission of names, as in Christ's genealogy in Matthew 1, where three names are omitted between Joram and Uzziah, verse 8, show conclusively that it is impossible to use such genealogies as we have in Genesis 5 and 11 as a basis for accurate chronological reckoning. So obvious is this on reflection, that the most conservative biblical students seem now agreed that the early genealogies must be interpreted with great latitude and that nothing stands in the way of a large extension of the period of man's existence on the earth if such should prove to be required. It does not follow, however, that the extravagant claims put forth in certain scientific quarters for man's antiquity are offhand to be accepted. There are the best reasons for not accepting them. The older estimates of geological time, generally, have had to be enormously retrenched, and one by one the criteria relied on to prove man's extreme antiquity have been shown not to be reliable. The assumption of tertiary, even of Miocene or Pliocene, man, may, in the present state of the evidence, be dismissed from consideration the question of man's age now resolves itself pretty much into that of man's relation to the glacial period pre-glacial interglacial post-glacial and on this experts are far from agreed two things seem to myself fairly well ascertained first that the earliest certain traces of man are towards the close of the glacial period and second, that the close of this period, and with it, the advent of man, are much more recent than was some time ago imagined. There seems good and constantly accumulating evidence that, in America at least, the conditions in Europe were probably not widely dissimilar, the glacial age closed not more than from 7,000 to 10,000 years ago, This brings the age of man within quite reasonable limits. The evidence on these points, so far as I know it, I have set forth in a recent book, and I need not here repeat it. I only observe, in illustration of the first, that in the latest book I have seen on the subject, that on North America, by I. C. Russell, professor of geology in the University of Michigan, 1904, it is very confidently stated that, quote, We find no authentic and well attested evidence of the presence of man in America, either previous to or during the glacial period. All the geological evidence thus far gathered bearing on the antiquity of man in America points to the conclusion that he came after the glacial epoch. Unquote. Page 362. The case does not seem to be very different in England, and probably is not on the continent of Europe either. In this connection, many authorities, as Prestwick, Howarth, the late Duke of Argyle, Dawson, G. F. Wright, etc., think that geology proves an extensive post glacial submergence after the advent of man which they relate with the Noachian deluge. Sir Henry Howarth says, quote, I do not see how the historian, the archaeologist, and the paleontologist can avoid making this conclusion in future a prime factor in their discussions, and I venture to think that before long it will be accepted as unanswerable, unquote. Part 5. What now, finally, is to be said of the brute origin of man? Has evolution not demonstrated that man is a slow development from the ape? Footnote. Hickel writes I have given fully in my history of creation the weighty reasons for claiming this descent of man from the anthropoid apes. Quoting again, it is therefore established beyond question for all impartial scientific inquiry that the human race comes directly from the apes of the old world. Quoting again, the resistance to the theory of a descent from the apes is clearly due in most cases to feeling rather than to reason. Evolution of Man, Popular Edition, pages 264 and 352. End of footnote. That his original condition was one of unrelieved animalism, and that his first appearance on earth must be put back countless ages, perhaps to Eocene times, to allow of his making the advances he has done. If so, What becomes of his being made in the image of God, as Scripture affirms, and of his fall from innocence in Eden? If his primitive condition was not one of innocent simplicity, what becomes of the whole Scripture doctrine of sin? These are grave questions. But I believe that without contravening any established scientific facts, A satisfactory answer can be given to them. There is no need for challenging the general doctrine of evolution, supported as that is by many evidences. But as every scientific man knows, evolution and the Darwinian theory of evolution are very distinct things. The former may be accepted, and the latter rejected. Darwinism is in fact at the present moment being largely superseded by a type of evolution of a quite different stamp. This newer evolution, as it is sometimes called, denies the sufficiency of the Darwinian theory of natural selection acting on fortuitous variations, seeks the causes of organic development chiefly within the organism, affirms purpose and design, above all, challenges the view that new species originate by slow and insensible variations out of others, and lays the stress on sudden changes, abrupt mutations, the rapid breaking up of existing types, and appearance of new and higher forms. Professor Foster, in his book already frequently quoted, gives some account of it, as I myself had done in my book on God's image in man, and goes so far as to say that, quote, it sets aside Darwinism as an overcome hypothesis, unquote. Page 235. Footnote. I have pointed out that Professor Foster owes much to Rudolf Otto, whose papers on the subject I frequently refer to in the notes to my own book. These Able papers are now republished in the volume previously alluded to. Compare E.T. chapters 4 to 7. End of footnote. It is obvious that if this new theory of saltatory or mutational evolution is accepted, it does away at a stroke with nearly all the difficulties connected with the origin of man. It involves a revolution in the way of conceiving the evolutionary process at once as regards the time required, the nature of the forces employed, and the need of supposing minute gradations between the lower and higher forms. In man's case, there is no longer need for supposing a slow and gradual ascent from ape to true man. The leap, when the proper time comes, may be taken with all the suddenness needed to introduce the new being, with his distinctive attributes, upon the scene. Neither is there any need for picturing man on his first appearance, as a semi-animal, the subject of brute impulse and unregulated passion. His nature may have been internally harmonious with possibilities of sinless development, which only his own free act annulled. Room is given on this view for a doctrine of sin, both individual and racial, such as Scripture affirms and requires as the basis of its doctrine of redemption and as experience so abundantly ratifies. In corroboration of the view now presented of the origin of man, and in opposition to the Darwinian and Heckelian theories of the descent of man, two all-important facts may be briefly adverted to. The first is the continued absence of all real middle links between man and his hypothetical ape ancestor, the Miocene *Dryopithecus*, is now generally given up, and hope is chiefly rested on the remains of the supposed ape-man, Pithecanthropus erectus, roof of a skull, some teeth, a thigh-bone, discovered in 1892-94 by Dubois, a Dutch doctor in Java, but scientific opinion steadily tends to the rejection of this also as a true intermediate form. At an anthropological congress held at Lindau in September 1899, Dr. bummuller read a paper in which he declared that the supposed Pithecanthropus is nothing but a gibbon, as Verkau surmised from the first. Last year, an eminent anatomist, Professor J. Coleman of Basel, contributed to a scientific magazine, Globus, an elaborate article on the descent of man. In this, he discusses the Java specimen and rejects it as a middle link between man and the apes. Footnote He adheres to the view he expressed at a Berlin Congress that the Javan specimen is indeed a highly interesting ape of the great group of the anthropoids, but cannot be regarded as a transitional form to man. An account of this article was given in the Westminster Gazette for August 30, 1906. I quote from the article itself. End a footnote. More than this, He holds, and argues for, the view that man's line of descent is not through the larger anthropoid apes at all. Some anthropologists contend, not through apes of any kind. Of course, if this is true, the whole question falls to the ground. The second fact is that the oldest skulls yet discovered do not afford support to the theory of the slow ascent of man from the ape. Some of them, as the Engis and Cro-Magnon skulls, are of excellent brain capacity. Others, as the Neanderthal, Kanstat, and Spee skulls, are more degraded. A recent discovery, 1900, of a skull of a diluvial man in Crepina in Croatia, of the Neanderthal type, with differences, adds interest to the problem. All these skulls are truly human, and can be paralleled by existing races. Huxley, in his work on Man's Place in Nature, in 1879, affirmed of the Neanderthal skull that it could in no sense be regarded as intermediate between man and the ape and in an article in the 19th century, 1900, pages 750 and following, he reaffirms with slight qualifications his former verdicts. He endorses the words of M. Freipont, quote, Between the man of spee and an existing anthropoid ape, there lies an abyss, unquote. Professor Coleman is of opinion that the better-formed skulls are the older. I would only add that so far as history has any voice in this matter, it does not confirm the idea of a gradual ascent of man from lowest barbarism. The further we push back the ancient civilizations, we find still true man, in all the plenitude of his powers, and possessed of arts, cities, culture, and religion. On the whole, therefore, we may still affirm without mistrust the old genealogy which alone answers to the facts of man's nature. Quote, The Son of Adam, the Son of God. Unquote. Luke 3, verse 38. Part 6. To this discussion of the general relation of religion to the sciences, I may in conclusion append a few words on the objection sometimes raised to the Gospels in the name of science on the subject of demon possession. Professor Huxley, who may speak for all, puts the matter in his usual strong way thus, If Jesus taught the demonological system involved in the Gadarene story, if a belief in that system formed a part of the spiritual convictions in which he lived and died, then I, for my part, unhesitatingly refuse belief in that teaching and deny the reality of those spiritual convictions." In strictness, as indeed Professor Huxley occasionally admits, the question is not one of science at all. Footnote. He repeatedly declares in the course of his discussion with Dr. Wassey that he has, quote, no a priori objection to offer, unquote, that, quote, for anything I can prove to the contrary, there may be spiritual beings capable of the same transmigration unquote, that he is quote, unable to show cause why these transferable devils should not exist. Unquote. Essays on agnosticism, etc and a footnote for the existence and operation of a spiritual kingdom of evil, lies beyond the province of a science of nature altogether. On the point of fact, however, many feel, as Professor Huxley did, on demoniacal possession, and resort to theories of accommodation, or to kenotic views of the limitations of our Lord's human knowledge to get rid of the difficulty. It seems to me, on the other hand, that if Jesus stood in the spiritual rapport with the invisible world, which the Gospels declare he did, this is precisely one of the things on which it is impossible that he could be mistaken. It is granted that Jesus believed in an evil spiritual world, and in an evil one who was its prince and ruler. I accept the belief on his authority, and because I think it not unreasonable in itself and borne out by many facts in experience and history. I am not at all prepared to affirm that demoniacal possession in the strict sense does not yet exist. I believe that many things could be adduced to show that it does. I take the Gospels accordingly, as they are on this point, without attempting to explain their testimony away. Footnote. The Reverend D. Smith, in his work, The Days of His Flesh, thinks that Jesus, quote, knowing right well what the ailment was, unquote, further quote, dealt with the demoniacs after the manner of a wise physician, he did not seek to dispel their hallucination. He fell in with it, and won their confidence, unquote. Page 108. In the case of the Gadarene demoniac, Mr. Smith thinks that the Lord, humoring the man's delusion, quote, pressed the swine into the service of his humane endeavors. He smote the creatures with a sudden panic, and they rushed down the incline to their destruction the stratagem was entirely successful," unquote. page 193. To me, it seems easier to believe in the demons. End of footnote. It is reasonable to believe that the hour of, quote, the power of darkness, unquote. Luke 22, verse 53, would be marked by exceptional manifestations of this form of evil. It is not the case besides, that as sometimes said, all diseases were ascribed to demoniacal agency, though possession was usually accompanied by some form of disease. For example, Mark 9, verses 17 and following. Distinction is clearly made in the Gospels between ordinary sickness Disease, lunacy, and possession. Compare Matthew 4, verse 23 and 24, chapter 9, verses 32 to 35, and chapter 10, verse 8, etc. End of section 18.